Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you are a guest this evening, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. If you will, everybody, take your Bible and open to the book of Acts. We won't have slides this evening for the lesson, and that is on page 966 in your pew Bible is where we'll be looking in just a moment in Acts, the second chapter. And we'll study together as we continue our ancient words and living faith, reading through the scriptures this year. This past week, we've been We've begun the book of Acts, and we'll look at some lessons out of the first few chapters of the book of Acts this evening. We do want to continue, as already has been done today. We want to continue to be praying for our various mission works, but we have a team that will be leaving this coming Friday of about 23 individuals. It's our teen mission trip. They'll be going to Marlington, West Virginia. This is the home of Stephanie Hines, and it is a small congregation that is just looking so forward to our young people helping them with a vacation Bible school. Uh, They just truly have been encouraged already with the fact that we've given a commitment that we would be there. And let's be sure and be prayerful uh, that great good would take place in the life of that congregation, that us being there would be a help and an encouragement to them and that someone in the community would be reached out to and spiritual good would be done in that sense and also that good would be done uh, for our young people and for our adults that will be a part of that. Uh, Not only physical safety, but spiritual growth as well. God blesses us with so many opportunities. He blesses us uh, in so many ways, uh, more than what we deserve. Let's make sure that we're wise with all of those opportunities and definitely the opportunity to be involved in prayer in this is definitely an opportunity we all have. Let's be sure and be encouraging in every way that we can. You know, there's something about going back to the home place. I know that wouldn't be true for everyone here, but for a lot of people here, you know exactly what I mean. There's just something about going back home. It reminds you of where you were. It reminds you of your roots. And oftentimes, it even reminds you of your core values. Tonight, I'd like for you to go back with me, if you will, to our roots as a church. Going back in that sense to the home place, the place where in Jerusalem, where it all started, the place where we look back and say, who were we in the beginning? And let's hope that we're still that church today. What is it that that church was about? If we were going to list characteristics or qualities of that church as it began in Acts, the second chapter, would those same things be true today? Now, I guess we could list over a hundred characteristics of the church as we study through the book of Acts. But tonight, let's just look at a few. The first thing that just leaps off the page as the church begins in Acts, the second chapter, with Peter standing up and preaching, is the fact that everyone was responsible personally for their relationship with God. We don't see entire families being converted as one family unit. In other words, one person in the family makes a decision and everybody becomes a Christian based upon that one person's decision. We also see the idea of personal responsibility as it lies in the fact of being convicted of sin. Have you really stopped lately and thought about who was gathered there in Acts the second chapter? You remember just 50 days ago, Jesus Christ had been crucified by Jews. And you want to talk about personal responsibility, think about Peter's personal responsibility to look the ones in the eyes who had been responsible for crucifying Jesus. Now this is easy for us to say in just just a sentence or two, but you imagine being there 
And you imagine looking the ones in the eyes that had crucified Jesus. And then if you have your Bible open, glance down to Acts the second chapter and imagine you being Peter and imagine the personal responsibility he had as he laid this responsibility upon them. In 22, he's going to reveal to them, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you dwell on that for a moment. Peter is looking them in the eye, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now he's going to go ahead and talk about how powerful God is that he raised him from the dead. But friend, from the very beginning of the church, what just leaps off the pages of history as we go back and see how it all began. It began by God speaking through Peter saying, each person has a responsibility. Peter and the apostles, you have a responsibility to speak boldly. Those that are listening, you have a responsibility individually. Or number one, are you going to see yourselves convicted of sins? Number two, are you going to respond for God's forgiveness as you are convicted of your sins? Now the beautiful thing is in verse 37, you remember how 37 ends. Those people said, men and brethren, what shall we do? Earlier in 37, it said they were cut to their heart. They were told in 38 to repent and be baptized, everyone of them, in the name of Jesus, for their mission of sins. Now, notice as we read verse 40, you see, there was much more to this sermon that's not recorded here in Acts 2. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Some of you were probably reading out of the King James, and I like it there because the you that's understood here is actually stated in the King James, and it says, you save yourselves from this untoward generation. In other words, the world is a crooked or perverse place to live. The Lord's way to heaven is a straight and narrow way. And the Lord is saying, if you're going to change courses... If you're going to leave the way of the world and you're going to walk the pathway to heaven, you are going to have to decide, are you going to change that path? The Lord's already done all that He could do. I don't know if you've read many flyers that are passed out by the denominational world, but anytime I'm walking down the street and someone's passing out those flyers, I usually go over and, and I take one. And it's interesting to me how many times those flyers will say things to the, to the effect of, if you want to be saved, there's nothing that you can do. Jesus has done it all on the cross already. Isn't that interesting? There's nothing you can do. Jesus has done it all. Now, let's pause right here. Can we merit our salvation? Can we work enough to earn it or deserve it? Absolutely not. But is there a response that God requires of us? Well, let's pause here for just a moment. We're reading in God's Word. We're reading the day the church was established. Now, keep in mind, Jesus had been crucified just about 50 days before. Just think about it, less than two months, seven weeks before. Wouldn't this have been a perfect opportunity? You just read with your own eyes in 37, these individuals that were guilty of crucifying Jesus, they cried out, what shall we do? And in 38, Peter said... There's nothing you can do. 
Seven weeks ago, Jesus did it all for you on the cross. Why doesn't it read that way? Friends, from the beginning of the church, the message has been very clear. Every one of us has a personal responsibility to serve God. I have to decide. In a few minutes, we'll sing a song of invitation. And there may be someone in this auditorium that is not saved. And there may be someone else in this auditorium that would literally give their life for that person to be saved. But you know what? Nothing can be done unless that individual decides, I want to serve God. I want to become a Christian. I am responsible for my sin against God. I am thankful that the Lord has died for me. I want to respond to this great invitation. Personal responsibility. Quickly look with me to Acts the 26th chapter. As I say that, some of you are probably already thinking, oh yes, that's a great illustration of it. The book of Acts gives us several illustrations of conversions, but then it gives us a few illustrations that are so disappointing. You remember Acts the 26th chapter where Paul is standing before Agrippa. He's been under arrest and Agrippa is trying to figure out what to uh, accuse him of in a professional and written manner. In other words, if we're going to send him on to Rome, we have to have something to write on the document to say, this is why we're sending him to you, Caesar. And he doesn't know what to write on the document. So he says, he says to Paul, I'll hear you out. And Paul stands before him and instead of trying to give a defense of himself legally, he gives a beautiful sermon about Christianity. And it's when he begins mentioning about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you have your Bible open, look at Acts 26. This is, uh, you'll see in 23. See in the 26th chapter in 23? That's when he says that Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And notice, when Festus hears the fact that he's speaking of the resurrection, just cannot stand the thought of teaching a resurrection. We have in, in 24, now as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. But he said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. And then notice he addresses the king. For the king, before whom I speak freely, knows these things. For I am convinced that none of these things escape his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. The crucifixion of Jesus was not done in the corner. The earth shook. It became dark from noon into three o'clock in the afternoon. Those were resurrected from the dead and walked the streets of Jerusalem. The resurrected Lord, this thing was not done in the corner. He was seen by more than 500 at one given time. This thing was not done in the corner. Festus, you think I'm crazy? Talk to your king. He knows what I'm saying is true. Now, with that being said, look at 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuaded me to become a Christian. Could there be any words any more sad than these words? Paul longed for the king to become a Christian. 
Sitting beside him would have been Bernice and then Festus would have been there and probably a, a royal guards would have been there. Can you imagine how they would have been dressed? The guards would have been decorated. Can you imagine the, probably the royal blue and the purple and the scarlet, expensive colors that the king and, and his lady would have worn? But there's somebody there that's out of place. As they sit freely on their throne, so to speak, there's somebody there in chains. There's someone there in common clothes. And the irony, he's the only one free. He is the only one that is rich where it matters. And he almost convinced King Agrippa to take the personal responsibility to say, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. What holds people back? The list could be long. And tonight we'll not take the time to go through it, but I want to ask that to plant this seed. In a few minutes when we sing a song of encouragement, please realize there is nothing worth putting off the response of our Lord. But each individual can only respond. No one can respond for you. How important it is from the beginning of the church when Peter said, you save yourself from this untoward generation. God's done all that He can do. He's offered it all. And now the question is, will I respond to it? Second, if you will go with me to Acts, the fourth chapter. We see the personal responsibility that was a characteristic of the church from the very beginning. But we also see the uncompromising loyalty. It is amazing as we flip by Acts, the third chapter, the great power that the apostles had to heal. And we see the lame man healed. And this caused quite a stir. And that brings us into the fourth chapter that it would eventually have Peter and John being arrested and they would begin to be uh, tried and even somewhat persecuted. Notice as we scan verse 13 and 14 of Acts, the fourth chapter. Now when they saw the boldness, this would be the Sanhedrin council and others around. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. Do you see the dilemma they're in? They're wanting to put Peter and John in their place, so to speak. But it's hard to put them in their place when they speak words that are so true and so powerful. And then, in addition to that, their works are so powerful. Here's a man that's over 40 years of age, and he's been lame all his life, and now he's standing there perfectly strong. What are you going to say to everybody? Don't listen to them. They have no power when they've just done something that nobody else around can do. And so they're in a dilemma. So this brings us down to 17. In other words, what are we going to do with Peter and, and John and the ones like them? Look at 17. But so that is, it spread no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So that was the decision the council made. So in 18, they called them and they commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old, whom this miracle of healing had been performed. What a powerful statement. Are we supposed to listen to you rather than God? We have an uncompromising loyalty to our God. We will speak for our God, no matter what the cost. Why would anyone do that? I'd suggest to you that probably the apostles, one reason why they would be so quick to do that is because they'd walked with Jesus. They'd walked with the Master. Let that sink in for a moment. Why would anyone here say, I would stand up for Jesus even if it meant me dying for Him? We would only do that if we truly on this earth had walked with Jesus. Now, I know physically you and I can't walk with Jesus, but we better be living each day walking with Jesus. And so just as these individuals had physically walked with Him, we can walk with Him by faith. Why would anyone say, I'm going to make my stand? They'd walked with Jesus, but second, I tell you, They'd seen the resurrected Lord. When you go back and you read the end of the Gospels and you saw how it ripped apart the faith of the apostles when they saw Jesus crucified and then how their faith was restored when they saw the resurrected Lord, now we see there's power in the resurrection. You see, until I truly come to grips with the fact that I serve a God who has power over death, I probably will never be able to stand boldly as I should. You see, the apostles' idea ought to be what ours is, and that is, take my life. You can't hurt me because my soul is going to be well with the Lord. You see, they'd seen the resurrected Lord. They also had fellowship. The word fellowship is the idea of communion, of partnership. You see, by this time, as we read early in the fourth chapter, there were already 5,000 believers in Jerusalem. Can you imagine the comfort that they had in knowing that they had brothers and sisters that had their back, so to speak, that was going to lean and strengthen them, to hold them up, to know that we're not in this alone. We're with the Lord. We're with the Lord that has power over death. We're with others. Surely those things helped. But friends, when we see their fact that their loyalty just simply would not be compromised, and then we read that next paragraph. It's a little bit lengthy, but will you read with me beginning at 23? And I think this is where we see how they found a a part or a portion of their faith. Look in 23 in their boldness. And being let go... They went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. Pause there for just a moment. Notice they're going to begin finding their strength in prayer. The first thing they're going to recognize is that they serve the Almighty God. 
the creator of all things, when we are reminded that our prayers reach the one who made the sun, the moon, and the stars, and us and everything that surrounds us, we realize that we're praying to a powerful, almighty being. And then he speaks about what was said by the mouth of your servant David, having said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Do you see what he's saying in this part of the prayer? In this part of the prayer, he's already identified the fact we're reaching the Almighty. In the second part, he says, Lord, we know of other times that great persecution was done to your son. And you were able to use that in the way that it fulfilled your plan that great things should be done. Notice the turn to this prayer. Maybe to appreciate this the most, I ought to stop now and just ask you the question. If you'd just been threatened, literally, with your life, if you didn't stop preaching and teaching, and you finally made the conviction within, I'm going to make my stand, I'm going to continue teaching and preaching, but I'm going to go back with the church and I'm going to pray. I would guess that 100 out of 100 of us would probably join in prayer and we would say something to the effect of, Lord, please make sure that this persecution never takes place again. Isn't it interesting that their greatest concern was not about them? Once they praise the fact that they're praying to the Almighty, they begin recounting the fact of how God has been able to use the times that people have been mistreated for His plan to be accomplished. That is amazing faith. Now notice what else. Notice as we continue reading this prayer in 29. Now Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servant that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy Servant Jesus, and when they'd all prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Their prayer was answered. They went out and spoke with boldness. But again, I invite you to consider again what their prayer was as you glance back at 29. It wasn't to remove all the threats. It was that in spite of the threats, they would continue to be able to speak with boldness, allowing God's power to be seen. Friends, it comes down to this. If I'm going to have an uncompromising loyalty to God, I have to realize that God is more important than me. His cause is more important than me. Whenever I find enough faith to be able to pray, Lord, if I need to be persecuted in order for you to be glorified, just give me the boldness to be able to withstand it. That sends cold chills down my back to make me realize how much maturing I need in my life compared to where the apostles in the early church was. We get so wrapped up in believing that everything is about us and all of our prayers are about us and what we want 
And sometimes I catch myself. And sometimes I hear others that I love dearly praying. And we have gotten so accustomed to prayers just being a wish list. We don't even say please half the time. How often we say, Lord, be with so-and-so. Is that how selfish we've gotten? Lord, I don't have to ask you. I don't even have to say please. Just be with them. What do I want? Am I praying that God would use their life for His glory? Am I praying that God would use our life for His glory? Am I praying that God would use our mission trips for His glory? Friends, one of the early characteristics of the Lord's church rings loud and clear. The individuals realized it's not about us. It's about Him. Allow His will to be done. As we close this lesson, I just want to mention a story you probably already know, but for time's sake, I'm just going to read the summary of this. You remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira and how they lied about what they would give, and it's there in the fifth chapter. And one of the common characteristics that we see of the early church is that they had a fearful obedience. I know that makes some people uncomfortable. Some people don't like to think about a relationship with God that involves not only love, but a fearful type of love and obedience. Friends, the early church had no problem of loving God and fearing God at the same time within the same person. As a matter of fact, whenever Ananias and Sapphira both were drug out because they lied to God, they were buried. Notice what the reaction is in verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these sayings. I would guess that if we saw that very same thing, great fear would come upon every one of us. Friends, it happened. That same God is still in control. That same God is just as much opposed to lying now as he was then. In Hebrews, the 10th chapter, we read in verse 30, Hebrews 10 and 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What do we see about the early church? We see that from the very beginning, each one had to take personal responsibility. We see that those that were dedicated to God were dedicated in a way that simply was not compromised. They'd give their all for the glory of God. And as they gave their all, they never lost sight of the powerful God that they would stand before one day in judgment and they did not want to stand before His vengeance. They wanted to stand before His reward. Friends, I invite you tonight 
by God's invitation to be a part of that church. He asks our all. He doesn't say how easy it'll be, but He offers everything that's worth anything in eternity. And that makes it all worth it. To love God with all of our being and to glorify Him in all that we are. Those are some of the characteristics of the early church. Going back to our roots. Back to glorifying God in everything. If you've not been baptized into Christ, why not? You make your decision tonight to be saved. Maybe you have been baptized into Christ, but yet you strayed. You realize nobody can respond for you. You have to be the one that says, I'm coming back. I'm coming home. And God is the one that says, He'll forgive. We can help you in any way. Come as we stand, as we sing.